Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the 10th episode in our Top 40 Career Series. I can't believe it's been 10 episodes. We are, we are coming to the end. And traditionally, when you get to the top of a list, you'll often see a pause for the honorable mentions, right? Like before we get before we get to number one on our countdown on this week's Watch Mojo Greatest Basketball Players Ever, here are the honorable mentions that we thought about but didn't include in the list. Well, we started this project, Cody, what it feels like about five months ago, uh, with the honorable mentions. And the reason we did that was twofold. One, the honorable mentions bleed into the top 40 because of the spirit of how I like to talk about ranges of value. So a lot of guys outside the top 40 could have easily cracked the top 40. And two, we wanted to start with a focus on the spirit of the list itself, this update, which was the modern players, to see which of the current modern players in the last few years had amassed enough value. You really just wanted to see if Giannis Antetokounmpo was able to make it. He's not quite there, as we discussed, but uh, he's, he's coming as long as he stays healthy. So we already did kind of this traditional, like, honorable mention to start the series. But at some point, I wanted to address the big names that aren't on this list, both five years ago and now, and names that traditionally pop up on other lists. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the kind of philosophical divide, not in ranking players necessarily, but in evaluating some of these players, some of these big scores like Allen Iverson, who we'll talk about in some some detail, I imagine, in the next few minutes, Dominique Wilkins, Carmelo Anthony, and maybe a few other players. You know, historically, you'll see guys like Earl the Pearl Monroe and Pete Maravich, 70s stars on these lists. Uh, sometimes you'll see Adrian Dantley, who's another just incredible scorer statistically. I mean, one of the great regular season scorers statistically, I think, in the entire history of the league. So that's why he pops up on lists. So that's kind of where we're headed today is to talk about why I'm traditionally lower on those guys, why you don't see some of those huge names on this list, where I kind of evaluate them in general as players at their best. And um, yeah, this idea that especially for, for a lot of NBA history, if you were a big volume scorer, you got a ton of credit. And it feels like even though we know more now, you, you don't see updates kind of uh, course correcting in the past or retrofitting new information to those guys. And so it, you'll see a lot of lists like Allen Iverson. If we look at the list we've traditionally used in this series, he's 28th on the USA Today top 75 list. Um, just for reference, that's right next to Kevin Garnett on that list. So you, you cannot philosophically have a bigger divide than that one between what we discussed uh, in the last episode in this series. Iverson also 37th uh, in the book of basketball, I think 31st in ESPN's list last year, their top 76 list, and in the last slam list, 28. So a lot of top 30s, a lot of top 40s. And the same thing for someone like Dominique Wilkins from the 80s. He makes a lot of top 50 lists. He's as high as top 40 um, number 36 on ESPN's last list. So that's where we're headed today, Cody. Let's do it. I wish I could hop into people's minds right now just to see what they think is coming. 
Because I, what I don't want people to think that I think people are thinking is they're like, oh, these two nerds are going to sit here and just like slam on these real hoopers for three hours. And that's what the episode is going to be. But like what I a really want. A real what? A real I, what? I'm never saying that again. I, I said previous episodes that I'm not going to say it. It slipped. Now, I apologize to all of the masses. We're going to wipe it from the record. But what I, I want to say. I don't say, think all these guys are real hoopers just for the just at least from what I've seen based on based on what you're. Uh, I imagine what you're referring to. I don't think all of them are. Some of them are, sure, yeah. But anyway, anyway, keep going. Yes, where where are we headed? What what I was gonna say is like, I I wanna I wanna frame this in like a, a positive light. I don't want people to think that we're just gonna sit here and just like dump all over these guys and be like, this is why Iverson secretly sucks. Because like I think I think you and I have some reverence for some of these guys. Like I. I, you know, going back for the conference final stuff, I genuinely enjoyed watching Allen Iverson. I genuinely enjoyed watching Carmelo Anthony, like Dominique Wilkins dunk contests. I mean, who hasn't gone back and watched some of those windmills? Like these are guys that, you know, I don't speak for you, but I really appreciate. But, you know, I think when we're talking in the context of trying to lay out literally, like quite literally the best basketball players that have ever come through the NBA, who's had the best careers. um, Yeah, we get a little nitpicky, but uh, I still want it to come from like a positive angle you know what i mean nope i'm gonna be as negative as humanly possible (laughs) today um that's what we're gonna do we're gonna get the spreadsheets out and we're gonna go crazy of of course that's not what we're gonna do and and to your point there are a lot of positives to discuss with all of these players i don't know how much detail we'll get into i definitely want to talk about iverson because i think he's really fun to talk about in general um but you know there's some philosophical divide where Maybe for people, ranking Pete Maravich really high comes with his aesthetic and his flair and his creativity and his behind-the-back passes in the 70s that, um, you know, there's like a Jason Williams white chocolate thing to it, except Maravich was also this crazy score when he was in college at LSU. He averaged like 71 points per game, and people just, you know, man, if Pete Pete Maravich did this without the three-point line, could you imagine what he'd do with the three-point line? So, so I understand that sometimes with rankings – there's that philosophical divide. We've talked about different criteria. The point of this series is all about on-court impact and evaluating how players move the needle based on how they play. And then it's a really, it's a longevity-specific series where you're adding up the career total. So you just keep tacking on value. That That's the spirit of this series. But I thought it was a great time to stop and talk about these guys. And, and let's start with Iverson because... I think you and I both think fairly highly of his offense, but of course, um, between his cultural impact on the game, his iconic 2001 playoff run. Now, now I just want to say as an aside, because we just did all these conference finals. Why is Iverson's playoff run so iconic outside of the fact that it's Allen freaking Iverson and he's just so exciting to watch and he's like this 5'11 dude out there doing his things and he had this incredible cultural influence with his style uh and his shoes and his personality and his and just how raw and genuine he was versus like the next year when the Nets made the comp made the finals out of the east the east was the east was not very good in those years and Philadelphia was never very good. And I think that right there is a big gap between how I look at things, because I look at Iverson from like 99, let's say to 03, although I do really like some of his 2005, 2006 offenses in Philadelphia when the team was weaker, the coaching situation 
was different. The league opened up a little bit with freedom of movement rules and perimeter players really excelled. And he's just one of the quickest, like one of the great first steps in NBA history. And despite his size, could get to the basket, cause some paint collapsing, some paint pressure, got to the free throw line. So I like those seasons too offensively. But when you look at the total of that, and we'll dive into his offense, but when you look at the total of that, and you look at his defense, and you look at the fact that his teams like actually never were very good teams, we've talked about what-ifs. What if Vince Carter or someone on Toronto makes an extra jumper in that Game 7 in the second round? They lose. The Bucks go on to make the finals. That's probably about as heralded as the Nets making the finals. Iverson never gets out of the second round in Philadelphia. He gets traded to Denver. Things don't work out well in Denver, as they actually did. They weren't terrible, by the way. We can talk about that, but they they weren't great. And then he leaves and Chauncey Billups comes in and then Denver instantly makes the conference finals and looks really good for a couple of years with Chauncey Billups. Like, what does that do to the way Iverson is commonly viewed? Because to me, in the spirit of this discussion today, the shape of his career isn't like a this guy was an MV, perennial MVP candidate year after year after year, and that's how you get him with these five, seven, eight years in the top 40, top 30 of all time. It's more like, how many all-star seasons does Allen Iverson have? What's his peak? Is it a strong all-NBA? Is it a low all-NBA? Um, his defense is a big concern as a little guy out there. Like, How do you balance that? Where do you get to? And then his longevity is another thing where his career just kind of comes to a comes to a screeching halt by the time you get to about... 2009. So it's a, it's a very different thing than the type of players we've been talking about. I think at one point you posited that like Chris Paul is kind of Kevin Garnett-ish. I kind of think the same thing about Allen Iverson and not like the defensive part of it, right? Like Chris Paul is a much better defensive player than than Allen Iverson, but like the motor part of it. And I think that's part of the thing that really that people liked is here's this guy that year after year is, po- year is pouring in like what, 43 minutes a game? <laughs> 44 minutes a game and when you watch him it's like it's it's pretty absurd just like how much he's going all the time and I think that also I think if I remember correctly he garnered some all defensive votes just because he was like a steals per game king like this is a guy that gambled a lot this is a guy that went for the steal this is a guy that just kind of like chased people around all the time and was I don't know skittering all over the court and I think especially like if you compare him and Garnett maybe he catches on a little bit more because of the cultural stuff but also because you know he's 5'11". He's built like, uh, you know, some of that you might go up and see playing basketball like an LA Fitness sometime, right? Like he's not like <laughs> this. He's not like this big, like towering presence. You know, it's just this guy that has this incredible handle, inc- incredible sp- um, speed, quickness, but also just like has a huge, like, quote unquote, heart, a huge motor, just goes for it all the time. So I feel like that combined with like toppling the Lakers for at least one game in the finals between all of that, I think that's just like the concoction that makes the myth of Allen Iverson. I don't talk about my fandom much on this show, but uh, you said the quote unquote heart. Uh, I mean, he won me over after a couple of years in the league. I'm always uh, a little, little thrown by small guards who just jack up a ton of shots. And one of the things I really want to talk about today with Iverson, and, a, and there's some common themes with these guys that we'll get to is the shot selection and what actually what it actually means to have problematic efficiency when you shoot a lot what it actually means to take a lot of outside shots and not make them at high efficiency and so 
all these, there's like a lineage of these guards during this period of time, starting with Iverson at Georgetown, uh, Stefan Marbury at Georgia Tech, who I thought was even more egregious about it. And goodness knows when he got to the league, he was quite fun with Minnesota, him and Garnett when they were babies there were really fun. And then you even had guys like Dewan Wagner who couldn't make the league who were like, oh, he's going to be a top pick out of Memphis. But you like check the, you're like, he shoots like 37%. From what, like from the entire field, I don't know what it is from three. It's probably even worse. So I was always skeptical of that. But then by the time he got a couple years into the league, I mean, you're just watching this dude dance out there and, you know, make um, what's better than lemonade. If life, if life gives you lemons, it's better than lemonade. It was like a very elevated spritzer that he was able to make dancing around with the basketball. Larry Brown comes in in 1999. And I think this is a big thing to realize cutting both ways for Iverson. There's a lot of pros and cons that I want to talk about with these guys. Iverson is taken off ball. He's not a he's he's playing point guard before Larry Brown gets there, but his decision making is in his strength. He's not like a really problematic decision maker, I think when you watch him on film. He's a pretty good passer. He can make some very nice passes at times off of the live dribble. And yet, Larry Brown came in and he's like I think this is going to work better if we move you off ball. We have a defensive-oriented roster. We lean into that. And Iverson played this hybrid game of like running around a ton off the ball, off baseline, off cuts that are now named after him. There's a famous Iverson cut named after him. And he mixed that in with his on-ball game. And in 1999, that's when I thought he really turned a corner and Philadelphia entered this period of competitiveness, peaking in 2001 with the run to the NBA Finals. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to the efficiency thing, because you talk about somebody that just takes shots all over the place, and this goes in with the heart part of it. I'm looking at your database right now, and I think the thing that just, like, blows my mind that gives him a little bit more efficiency (laughs) is between 1997 and 2009 in the regular season, he's at least 91st percentile in free throw attempts per 100 possessions, right? And so that was something that he was always extremely good at. So even though, like you said, the shot selection wasn't always there, like he was always excellent at getting into the deep, the defense. And like you said, in a variety of different ways, he could do it off the dribble, right? He can dance around one of the best dancers in NBA history, one of the best first steps, like you said, but also coming off these steps, coming off, you know, the the floppy that Larry Brown and everyone during the time uh, used all the time. Um, so yeah, w- w- when you combine that, like that, that definitely makes sense. I think with the players however many we get to today, the handful of players that I mentioned that we're going to talk about that are traditionally on these kinds of lists or fairly high on these kinds of lists that haven't shown up in the series that we've done so far. I think for my money, Cody, none of them are really good offensive number ones, meaning this definition of like a guy who you want to be, he's good enough to be clearly the best player on a championship level offense. And then that raises the question of what it means for them to be offensive number twos. And we can get to that. But starting with Iverson's interesting because he's by far the closest. He is by far the closest. I think there's plenty of rosters. Like if you swapped Iverson into San Antonio for Tony Parker, I think you could get better offense that the Spurs had, and you could still have a similar kind of defensive outcome protecting small guards the way they did. So he is the closest to me precisely because some of the skills we're talking about where even though the efficiency is an issue, and I want to talk about that next, 
all the other things that it's kind of like Russell Westbrook. You get more paint pressure, you get more shot creation. In Iverson's case, he could play on and off ball. He's not the greatest shooter ever, but he's a good enough shooter to catch and shoot a lot in these situations. And I think the another big theme about all these guys for me, Cody, that maybe we should pause and touch on right now is if they had played in different situations or if they had played a slightly different style that might have been more optimal, would they have the reputation that they have? Would they show up on these lists? I have to believe that the points per game and the scoring numbers and the individual scoring games, regardless of their effectiveness or their efficiency, help boost these players in a lot of people's minds. Whereas someone like James Worthy, who was sort of the contemporary rival of Dominique Wilkins, instead of going out there with his quote-unquote own team or going out there, like Doc Rivers was really good, but Doc Rivers was never going to score 25 points a game. Kevin Willis was really good, but Kevin Willis was never going to score 25 or 30 points a game. So you have these really balanced, fun teams, the Sacramento Kings with Chris Webber. The Kings were fantastic as a team. But how much of that credit needed to go to one player? When the Hawks got really good, 1986, Dominique Wilkins finishes second in MVP. When the Kings get really good and they take their jump, Chris Webber jumps up in the MVP and he's first team all NBA amidst like the emergence of Garnett and Dirk Nowitzki and Tim Duncan at four. They're like, no, Chris, we got to credit someone on Sacramento, right? How much of that is because they're taking these extra shots, which aren't even optimal or effective necessarily versus worthy who's finding like he's just settled in as a as a number two kind of guy and a secondary offensive guy finishing next to magic getting his own post touches in isolation and he chugs along and scores 22 23 24 points a game at better efficiency on super effective offenses and over time you look back and you're well it doesn't even have to be 30 years later you might look back two years later and be like Dominique Wilkins is going to score 30,000. You know, look at all the 30-point-per-game seasons. He has to be really, really high up on my list. He has to get these accolades because we have to give someone from these teams the shine, and the shiniest object is the guy scoring the most points. If we just stick with, like, the 10 seconds, the 20 seconds of what you just said, we're going to be here forever. But the one thing that I want to talk about for a second, because you bring up Worthy, and I think with Worthy, we at least, like, saw him. We saw him uh, gel with, like, like the highest level offenses ever. And even on the defensive end, we see him, we talked about a little bit, being somebody that's really good at defending Bird, right? So somebody that can fit next to other high-end talent. But when you talk about, like, Iverson, you're like, what if Iverson were to be in a different situation? What if we saw Iverson in a different play style? I'm like, yeah. But like, does that does that work? Like, does Iverson work in the Spurs play style? Does does Iverson is he able to play another style that's not Iverson ball? And if he is actually in his like ideal situation, if he is playing next to another player that complements him the best, I don't even know theoretically like who that would be. So if you're imagining that, like who's like the kind of an ideal one a running mate to Iverson and then what kind of system do you think would be best for him and do you think like a spur system is that best system I don't know what the best system might be but let's just stick with the Spurs system I mean could you not see him just swapping in for Tony Parker's exact role and I mean to me playing it a little bit better basically which is also an anchoring thing because it's like try to make the case that Iverson's skill set and everything that he brings to the table is significantly better than someone like Tony Parker. 
Um, I don't think I could do that. I, I do like Iverson better than Parker. I do think he is better on offense. So I assume you could plug him into that team, and instead of seeing Iverson ball and a ton of relentless off-ball stuff, you'd see the same actions where he can back cut, you know, you can get off the ball, he can loop around, come back and catch it, he can play pick and roll, he's super quick getting into the paint, he can play off of Tim Duncan, you know, the Spurs had that play where they just got like a bucket every game where they're like, okay, Parker, dribble, 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 throw it to Duncan at the elbow, now cut right at Duncan and see which way the defender goes, and then you turn and get a layup. Um, I don't see why he wouldn't do that. I think much like when he went to Denver, you would just see lower scoring outputs from him. And to the point about the shift from being a number one to a number two, I don't think there's great evidence that you would see what you see with someone like Worthy, where like as Iverson's volume goes down, his efficiency goes way up. But I think, you know, playmaking, um, isolation scoring, some off-ball juice, and like a 23 to 25-point scorer at decent, moderate efficiency... I think that's a pretty good, that's like at least an all-star player, if not an all-NBA level player. And as we've seen, that actually happened in his career. You know, you could put him in playoff situations where maybe Duncan's having an off night or something like that, and he has some awesome games. And do you develop a reputation like that as it's kind of, you know, one of the better, just like Worthy. I mean, big game James Worthy, if you want to go back and watch some craziness, watch like any game seven in the late 80s for the Lakers. Uh, you get something like that and you get a player who's considered a legend, but it's a different kind of thing than what ended up happening after the, the 2001 single game victory over the Lakers. I do think this is this is kind of the what if game that I struggle with more because it feels like the same common the conversation that people have had about Russell Westbrook since going to the Lakers. It's like oh he's going to be off ball a lot more. Look at his his corner three point shooting. He's going to set a lot more screens. And then like kind of what you're saying like yeah theoretical Iverson with the Spurs it, it's brilliant. Like he does do what Parker does, but probably you know like you said to a better degree. But like does he buy in in that regard? And I don't want to comment on like whether or not Iverson would be able to. It's just that's the game that I struggle with more because I just I just don't know. I haven't seen evidence of that exact sort of thing going on. So I'm, I'm a little less comfortable being like, yeah, if Iverson were in that system, he would have been more successful because of X, Y, and Z. Because I just, I, I just don't know. I don't know. By the way, if you're thinking Tony Parker and Allen Iverson, they, they feel like they don't belong in the same sentence, what's going on? What are you doing? Allen Iverson won an MVP. He's got multiple All-NBA first teams. Tony Parker never won an MVP. He peaked at 20 points per game, seven assists. You're like, like, what's going on here? How can you compare 20 points per game, seven assists to someone like Iverson, who has an MVP, four scoring titles and multiple seasons over 30 points per game and himself averaging like six, seven assists. What, what, what gives? Well, the whole point here is the context. Remember that. So Iverson played on a team where he was always going to be the guy doing the heavy lifting and basically maxing out his offensive load. This goes back to the video I made last year about interpreting stats and what happens to your play and your value when a second star comes on the court, a third star comes on the court, a secondary star slots next to you. Philadelphia just never had any of those. So he was offensively kind of maxed out. In San Antonio, Parker's obviously playing with Tim Duncan and Manu Ginobili. So we expect 
his raw numbers to be much lower with them. And we can look at how his role changes when only one of those guys plays next to him or neither of those guys play next to him. So just so everyone understands where I'm coming from on this, Parker, from 2007 to 2010, he plays over 1,000 minutes without either Duncan or Ginobili. So that's a more apples-to-apples comparison of Iverson having his own team. That's more like Parker being the only offensive engine, the, the lone star on the floor, if you will, in San Antonio. So in those 1,000 minutes... Without Duncan and Ginobili, Parker averages 31 points per 75 on plus 3% true shooting. And his passer rating in my model is about 7. He creates about 15 shots per 100 per teammates, for his teammates. So he's carrying this enormous load. And again, he looks like more than a 30-point-per-game score and his playmaking increases. If we compare that to like Iverson's best statistical stretch, which is actually in 2006 with Chris Webber off the floor. Remember Webber, uh, post-injury Webber played with Iverson. Iverson has a very similar load, very similar passer rating, creates slightly fewer shots actually in my uh, box model that estimates this. And he scores about 33 to 34 at plus 1% true shooting. In those minutes, Iverson's teams outscored opponents by about four points per 100. And in Tony Parker's minutes, without Duncan and Ginobili, the Spurs outscored teams by about three points per 100. So you could see a situation where if both of those guys had their own teams, their quote-unquote own teams for an entire year, their overall stats might not look that different The big comparison I'm making here is that Parker plays on a championship-level team with other high-level offensive players. Iverson is in a completely different situation where he's the only guy out there. Okay, let's talk about the shooting. I've alluded to it, and it is a big deal for me, and I think it's a commonality with some of these players. So we're talking about Iverson. Um... I think it's a thing for Dominique Wilkins, although we don't have the shooting stats. And from the games that I've seen and the data, I think it's a thing for Pete Maravich. Taking a lot of outside shots, but not being a great outside shooter. We talked about this, I think, with Reggie Miller in an earlier episode. Perhaps the most single underrated thing in how we evaluate and internalized basketball as fans is just being able to put the ball in the hoop when you shoot it away from the hoop. Layups are one thing, free throws are one. But like if you're six, eight, ten feet away, all the way out to the three-point line and beyond, the ability to make those shots more accurately is still such an incredible game changer. And so if you look at Iverson and his outside shooting performances – he peaks. I have a database that looks at 15, 15 foot jumpers out to 23 feet and 15 foot jumpers and beyond. You can include the three point shot as well if you want. He peaks at 37% on his shots outside of 15 feet. That's in the 34th percentile 
for the data we have after, you know, in the 21st century, basically. Phew. Yeah. Um, that's unadjusted for era, you know, so you could say maybe he plays in a slightly harder era, but that's not going to change it that much. The guys of his era are are much better. So for some comparison, let's compare him to Ray Allen. We, we just watched the 2001, uh, that great conference final showdown between the two of them. Ray Allen peaks right around the same time, 2001 to 2003, in Milwaukee at 43%. So Iverson makes these shots at 37%. Ray Allen makes them at 43%. He's in the 91st percentile. So you, so it's the difference between, like, I'm maybe slightly below average as an outside shooter. Maybe if Iverson gets more open shots, that number would go up a little bit more because his shot diet is a little more difficult. But Allen makes them uh, about 6% more from that distance. Now, then there's the three-point shooting just by itself. Iverson in the playoffs from 2001 to 2005 was a 35% three-point shooter. Ray Allen was nearly 41%. If you just took Iverson's three-point shots, let's forget the heavy diet of two-point shots. It's a ton of shots. It's like 10 to 15 mid-range shots a game. If you just look at his three-point shots and you gave him Ray Allen's three-point shooting percentage... His team would score more than one point per game extra just from making those shots. It's hard for our brain to internalize that. Cody, an extra one point per game of value every game for a player, that's like the difference between an all-star and a solid all-NBA guy. That's the difference between being like a good all-NBA guy and getting up to that weak MVP level. A point per game on offense is no joke. A point per game on offense is a big deal. In my offensive peaks, it's probably like the difference between having a top 10 offensive peak of all time and having like a top 30 or top 40 offensive peak of all time. So just the shooting component is a really, really huge deal that I think when you watch the game can be extremely difficult to internalize. And this is the part where people's, people get mad and they say, you're ruining the game or you're, you're it, no, this is literally the game. Other people say, well, we didn't know about it back then. Sorry. We know we knew about it. Every coach is trying to score as many points as possible since the beginning of time. And coaches have been talking about and modeling some form of efficiency, points per shot, true shooting percentage, offensive rating. I've, I've seen it back in the 60s. You can definitely see articles of big coaches talking about it in the 70s. This has been something people have been trying to maximize forever. And this is where if you're going to play this style, you know, even someone like Kobe Bryant, just being a couple percentage points better on those shots can level you up as an offensive player. So when when you talk about efficiency, I I think about Dominique and I think about Iverson here because you go into your database and you look at when, when you point like those numbers you were looking at are like discrete sections of the court, like mid range three point shot. But when you boil them down in your database to like true shooting percentage, which is something that we cite a lot. It's really interesting because we look at these best players like the, the players we've been talking about all series. You get some of these playoff numbers that are like 28 plus seven, 30 plus 10. If you're Reggie Miller, you know, the, these just ridiculous scoring outputs. But then you see Dominique and Allen Iverson. It's like maybe 30 points per 75, but on like negative four, negative three. So, like, when you're a negative efficiency shooter like that, like, what, how much do you think you're, you're capping your team? Like, how valuable can you actually be? And then when you actually look at true shooting percentage, you kind of just did this math here where you're like, oh, you can get an extra point of value here, and this is how valuable it is. Like, how many percentage points in true shooting percentage do you think that is before that starts to shift when you become a high-volume scorer? Well, I think the 
true shooting percentage is often a reflection of how much you're pressuring the defense and how much defenses will react to you. But what we know is because it's hard to internalize this in real time, if you are a lower efficiency player, defenses will still react to you. They don't care sometimes. So you can be like 30 points per game at positive efficiency, like plus two or plus three percent, and you can be 30 points per game at negative one percent, and defenses may play you the exact same way, which means you get to create a ton of offense for others. Westbrook has this in spades. Iverson has this to some degree. Um, Dominique Wilkins is a different type of player. We're going to have to put a pin in that and come back to it in a second. But these guys that can create offense off of their scoring, I think there's a tremendous amount of value in the playmaking itself. Now, how much value is in the scoring? That gets a little trickier to describe because you couldn't have the scoring without the playmaking. I mean, sorry, you couldn't have the playmaking without that type of scoring. Let me get that right. The scoring itself is the thing that sets up the playmaking. So if those players, every possession were to come down the court and Iverson were to be like, you know, I can't really generate a Michael Jordan 61% eight-footer here with a couple dribbles and a pull-up. It's only like 49% for me. I'll just pass the ball and run into the corner. If he were to do that, his playmaking would go away. And then his team's overall effectiveness, depending on the roster, maybe especially in Philadelphia because of the roster, wouldn't be as high. It wouldn't be as strong. So my answer to you, Cody, is I think there's probably some kind of hard drop-off where your effectiveness starts to careen downwards when your efficiency gets really, really problematic because defenses will just be like, uh, we're going to let Antoine Walker take all those threes. We don't care. We really don't care. You can take 12 threes a game at 29%. We just don't care. But the guys we're talking about today are still good enough to generate pressure and create offense. And the other mathematical part that's really important is even if your efficiency is negative, some of those negative efficiency shots aren't problematic for your team's offense because half-court offense and sloggy half-court offense late in the clock is the least efficient offense in basketball, and it's probably been that way for at least half a century, if not since the beginning of time. And so the that efficiency we look at, that overall number, includes free throws, it includes loose ball fouls, it includes late-game intentional fouls, and most importantly, it includes transition offense. And when you strip that all away... And then you go, hey, I noticed Iverson's number. I noticed Iverson's efficiency is like 1% below league average. Doesn't that mean he's hurting his team by 1%? No, that's not what that means. So it's, it's, it's not like just because these guys float in this area that's like plus one, minus one, minus two, that they're necessarily hurting their team because that number is probably... I don't know. It's probably lower. It's probably minus four, minus five, minus six percent. But it also depends on the context, right? Does that does that all make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in the context of these guys are talking about. Just because you know, especially between like Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony, Allen Iverson, Dominique Wilkins, I um, Wilkins and Anthony didn't really ever strike me as strong passers, right? They pressured a lot more with their their offensive scoring punch. But Iverson, like his probing ability. And like you said, the, the free throw generation that he has, when you combine that with the passing, yeah, it makes total sense that you can't just be like, all right, we are isolating the scoring right here because that 
that doesn't factor in all the other things that he's able to do on the court. And you can see that I think it's really on display because there are periods of time during the 01 Eastern Conference Finals where like Iverson's shot just leaves him. Like he's in like the 20, 28% from the field or something like that for a couple of the games. But then he still, he kind of goes into like this passing mode that's like, all right, well, I'm still going to blow by you. I'm still going to kind of dance around. And I'm still going to make you like get into rotation. So like, even like you said, if you're inefficient, but can force rotations in that way, if you're taking the kinds of shots that's forcing rotations, then you're starting to add a little bit more value. But I think, to your point, if you're not forcing rotations with the inefficient shots that you're taking, you're not making passes out of those sorts of reads, then the scoring output becomes more of a detriment to you and your team's offense. Yeah, and the tricky part is, can you dial it down if something better comes along? That's the tricky part. So if you're used to this style where you can never generate easy shots, then... What happens when, like, that's where I think Iverson going to Denver is actually a nice little data point for him in the sense that he continued to kind of just play like this jitterbug all over the court and his numbers were okay. But the most important signal for me is that he didn't try to take 35 shots a game because he had better talent next to him. He had Carmelo Anthony next to him was a different situation than in Philadelphia. So I think he demonstrated as a player enough flexibility and enough strength as a decision maker, even though I don't think on-ball decision making is necessarily something he was like an A, A-plus kind of player as. Um, I think he demonstrated enough chops in those areas that I'm comfortable with him playing like we alluded to the Spurs earlier you know being able to modulate a little bit when there's different uh, opportunities out on the court by the way a lot of these guys are heralded for making tough shots and it's worth always pausing and reinforcing that taking tough shots is not a good thing in basketball you want to generate easy shots you want to generate layups free throws wide open jumpers you want to generate a post touch from a player like you know, it's a great shot, a Kareem sky hook in single coverage from nine feet. Uh, someone has gone and tracked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of his sky hooks. And it's like you get a half court post offensive touch for a dude at like 55 percent or something, especially in the early 80s. That's great offense. That's what you want. An open Michael Jordan elbow. You want a shack dunk. That's what you want. You don't want a ton of like, well, look at how amazing he is that he's making these at five foot 11. It's like, well, that's not going to get you great offense. And as we've alluded to many times, uh, Philadelphia and Iverson, they did not have strong offenses. I want to put some numbers on this because as I said, you know, you and I like Iverson's offense, a, a decent amount, even in the context of all these great players we've talked about. So I think it helps to look at some of the numbers and understand how players like him are helping but maybe just not helping quite as much. From 2000 to 2004, he misses some games that we can look at, right? Where he's out of the lineup and his team is still chugging along without him. It gets tricky because his teams actually had a lot of health problems. They had a lot of health issues, but they were a very defensive-minded team, especially this Larry Brown philosophy. Larry Brown has a history of going from team to team and turning them into awesome defenses. Last time you asked me about this, I said it's the coach. I said it's the personnel, and I think said having that superstar in the middle always helps. Philadelphia did have shot blockers in the middle. They had Theo Ratliff, and then they brought in Kemba Mutombo. Anyway, it's hard to parse. But if we took it like, look at like 2000, for instance, and don't pay attention to Theo Ratliff missing 25 games 
and we kind of control for all the other players moving in and out of the lineup. In 49 games with Iverson, they Philadelphia plays at a 48-win pace, and their offense is right around league average. In 12 games that Iverson misses, they go down to a 38-win pace, so they're 10 wins worse, and their offense is the worst offense in the league. So you, you can see a signal, okay, even though this guy's somewhat inefficient or he has certain shortcomings or you know he's not one of the five best offensive players of all time and his true shooting percentage numbers are this, he's still having a pretty healthy, positive impact on that team. That's one sample. That's a small sample. But if you go to 2001 you kind of get a similar thing when he's in and out of the lineup. They trade Matumbo, um, so it's hard to figure out. But if you kind of combine before the trade and after the trade, I end up with 61 games where Iverson plays at a 51-win pace, uh, nine games that he misses at a 42-win pace. 2002, same thing, 32 games. He's in the lineup when they're healthy, 49-win pace, 10 games without him. 36 win pace. So you consistently see this kind of impact. And since we have play-by-play data, we can just look at what happens when he goes to the bench during the middle of the game. And again, he doesn't have tremendous plus-minus numbers over the 25-30 years we've had this data, but he's in like the 84th percentile from 1998 to 2002. His teams are about seven points worse when he goes to the bench in Philadelphia. That's pretty good, right? Same thing in the playoffs, you know, not the best numbers in the postseason. I mean, 1999 to 2002, they're also about seven points better, which is the 63rd percentile. What do you make of the the claim that like, especially the Larry Brown Sixers were so defensively built that it was kind of like completely on Iverson to run the offense? Does that like change the way that you would view that that's like you would actually expect to see a bigger drop off of someone like him off or is that sort of the reason why he has such a big impact on the offense I think it's a little of both I think it falls in the middle for me I do think that's valid they were uh, a very heavily uh, defensively oriented team there are some stretches in the regular season where they can hold water and it's like Aaron McKee kind of is a slightly better offensive player than you really think kind of thing. And if, you know, he was just on a bad team, he would score 19 points a game instead of 12 points a game or something. But it's also, as you said, it's totally built around having him out there. If literally Aaron McKee is your second best offensive player, your second best creator, what's going to happen when you come out of the lineup? So for me, it's a little of both. It's, it's looking at those signals and, I think if you were really a super-duper star offensively, you'd have a bigger drop-off when he goes to the bench. Um, but the flip side is he's also doing a lot of heavy lifting when he's out there, so that's probably why his volume and his efficiency look the way they do. I, ju- I just try to land it in the middle somewhere and compare him to other players in different situations. Honestly, over the years, that's where the Tony Parker anchoring has been so interesting to me because I think their quickness and some of their similarities... Maybe Iverson has a little more three-point pop, although he's not a great three-point shooter. Um, Defensively, how do they compare? It's like something in that ballpark, although there's a ton of things that Iverson does that I personally like better than Parker. I like some of his passing better, and I like some of his off-ball movement better, and and even some of his isolation from the outside against different types of defenders I think is better. But that's my goal to answer your question, right? I'm not just hyper-focusing on the Philly situation and then putting up blinders and being like, well, how could we How could we ever know? Instead, I'm looking at other players in NBA history, 
who are maybe are similar, but also have different situations. I'm glad you brought up defense with Parker and Iverson, because I think that's that's a really interesting comparison point, because Parker didn't really create many turnovers, and he needed to be covered a fair amount on defense. Like, he fit next to other, like, high-end defensive talent. Like, clearly the Spurs were still very good defensively with him. But then when you see Iverson, like, Iverson's shorter, smaller than Parker, but also, like I said earlier, steals God, somebody that's creating a lot of turnovers, somebody that's just kind of all over being pretty annoying. Like, I think he's a pretty tremendous pick dodger at times when he's engaged, but also at the end of the day, he's 5'11", 5'10", 160 pounds in the NBA. So, like, I, man, I don't really know what to do with his defense because it was clear that at times it was a significant detriment. Like, he can't offer any sort of rim protection. He gets, like, Sam Cassell just backing him down and getting that little mid-range jumper. Like, there's nothing he can do about it. But, like, still tremendous hands, still high motor on defense. I mean, my first thought is he's maybe better than Parker, but I don't know if I'm overrating turnovers. I, I don't know. What what do you do with Iverson's defense? I, I don't know. I mean, if you look at, like, the plus-minus studies that try to isolate his defense, he's usually a negative or around neutral. I think when you're that small and you have the profile that you just described, it's probably somewhere in that area. But I could – look, I could totally see him going to San Antonio – getting to gamble more because of the rim protection behind him. He's so quick, and I think to some degree maybe his best – I'm wincing as I say this questionably – is his best defensive skill shooting the gap hmm. for steals because he's long for a guy who's 6 feet, 5'11", and he's quick, and he's pretty decent at reading those plays when he's engaged? I don't know. And if that's the case, does that make him – a better defender. You know, it's like the Rajon Rondo effect. It's like, well, you just put great defenders behind you and you let the guard gamble more and be more disruptive. Maybe you could have seen him as a positive defender consistently. And of course, at this level of player that we're talking about, these small guards, the difference between being a slight negative and a slight positive, that's a pretty nice bump in your value for your team. And, and you add that up over the course of a series like this. And you're like, you do that for five or seven years and you're golden. Um, Speaking of defense, there is one thing I want to address about Philadelphia. They have this reputation as just being completely miserable without, like, they would just be completely lost and inept if Iverson went to the bench. You asked me about offense. I think that's generally true of offense, especially in a playoff setting. By the way, Cody, Allen Iverson played 46 minutes a game in the playoffs for like the heart of his peak years that we're talking about in Philadelphia, 46 minutes a game. He played like 43 in the regular season. He's like, no, that's not enough. I need to play almost all the minutes. I am modern day small Wilt Chamberlain out there or something. Uh, that is absolutely incredible. But as much as the offense in a playoff setting, I think really needed him just to tread water they were such a good defensive team that then when he went out, whether it's regular season or the playoffs, we see a pretty consistent signal that they're not like a 10-win team. They're not like a 20-win team. I read those numbers to you earlier. I don't know what they are depending on the year, but being like a 35 or 40-win team is a decent little team. And by the way, it's nothing to, um, on the flip side, it's nothing to scoff at if you're Iverson and you take a 38-win team to 48 or 50 wins. That's That's good. That's like a really good player. Is that a superstar MVP level player? Maybe not necessarily, but I don't know. Is that an all NBA player? It's the type of signal you would see from someone like that. It's pretty good. We can look at 
at least over the regular season, the playoffs, the man never comes out of the game. So the off sample is very small. But his off-court sample, when he goes to the bench in the regular season, I mentioned 1998 to 2002, where he's plus seven in the 84th percentile. Uh, Without him, that means Philadelphia was minus 3.8 points per 48 minutes. Minus 3.8 That's not that good if you look at all players. But if you look at the top 100 players in on-off changes, so in other words, you're looking at guys who usually are superstars or stars or a team's best player, and the team gets worse when he goes to the bench. Among those top 100 players, Iverson 76ers are in the 46th percentile, right around the middle of the pack. And I think that kind of jibes for me personally with watching the team. Very, very, very good competitive defensive team who's just trying to scrape by to do enough uh, in the regular season. I mentioned recently, I'm always thinking about the playoffs in the back of my head when I look at regular season numbers. I think they're probably a little worse offensively in the playoffs. But again, we don't have any real strong playoff signal that indicates that because the man never came out of the game in the postseason. The, the time he did come out, you know, in, again, 2001 Injury Conference Finals, plays all 48 minutes in game one, right? Plays 44 minutes in game two. But then, Ben, he sits out game three. And he this, this is against the team that, like, people talk about, like, oh, that Bucks team should have made the finals. So you imagine, you're like, oh, no no Iverson on the Sixers playing against the, the, the team that probably should have won the finals? They got creamed. No. What was it, a four-point game? Was it a six-point game? Is that what the Sixers lost? Like, it was a competitive game, and I think it was like 88 to 84 or something like that. So they had these indicators, too, extremely small sample size, one-game sample, that they could really lock in defensively, that they could almost be like, all right, we're going into shell mode, and we're just we're just turning it on defensively here. So I, I find that just single-game indicator really fascinating. Part, part of me thinks that that was Larry Brown's favorite team, despite all the drama, <laughs> right? All, all the documentaries that have been made about it, because he like he has this team and he's like, OK, OK, let's let's go all in on my defensive philosophy. And then offense will just be Iverson. We'll just figure out a way to just he'll do everything. And then like the moments that Iverson went to the bench, Larry was like rubbing his hands together. and He's like, finally, no good offensive players on the basketball court. How good can I make the team? And like. Frankly, if you look at some of the on-off numbers, you can lean into defense so hard that you're like annoyingly competitive against other moderately decent teams. Now, if they played like a 65-win title level team, would that hold up? Probably not. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my secret Larry Brown theory. I don't the like li- the implication that the the Bucks were a, a secret 65-win team. They were not. They were not. I'm championship sorry. level all-time sort of offense. I'm, get get I'm out sorry. of here with that. I'm sorry, Cody. They weren't. Giannis uh, is in the top 40, and that Bucks team was incredible. <laughs> I think the last thing for Iverson, uh, and then I want to talk about Dominique Wilkins, is a totally different type of player, and we can come back and weave Carmelo or any of these other guys in if you want. I think the last thing for Iverson, for a project like this, as I mentioned earlier, is just his longevity. What do you make of it? Like 1999 to 2006-ish is pretty pretty good basketball, I think, from Iverson for those seven, eight years. But, you know, two more years in Denver, and then by the time 2009 rolls around, he goes back to Detroit. It's just like... Uh, he's just, he's, he's just doesn't have it. He's just not, not the same anymore. And 
as we've talked about in this series, to get into like the top 35, top 30 range, you need like a decade of all NBA play, basically, or you need more than a decade of all-star level play. And for me, Iverson falls short there. So he's kind of a guy that I would have in this career value and like maybe the next band down after we get from honorable mentions. I don't know what that is. That might be like 30 players spanning like 55 to 85 or something like that. He might be in there, but it's just not enough to get him into our honorable mentions discussion that we that we started the series with. Where do you where do you place his peak and like how many of all NBA All-Star types of seasons do you credit him? I I think I would describe his peak as all NBA. Um I don't know if it's like strong all NBA for me, it's probably on the lower side, but you know, the range that we're talking about would easily push it to strong all NBA if if maybe the things about his defense were a little bit um stronger that we discussed I mean I think that's the difference in in guard defense right like if you take his defensive valuation in my head and you go well instead of it being slightly negative Ben what happens if you make it slightly positive then I think you're talking about someone who's closer to a a strong strong all NBA level player and then if you count like all-star for I mean I think he's like a fringy all-star guy in like 1998 and I think he has that through 2008 so if you count those both as all-star seasons that's 11 all-star seasons and then in the all NBA stuff I think about 1999 to 2006 now not all of those years are great he misses plenty of time he's got some health issues that that kind of take a little value off of some of those seasons but that period is, I think each of those years could flirt with an all NBA level year. And I think that's for me, how you get in that next wave of players, probably after the, the uh, uh, honorable mentions guys that we talked about versus he's missing a peak that would have that level of longevity to get him into the conversation we talked about with someone like James Harden. I was just about to say that, like we, we've talked about so many of these guys that's like, 15 All-NBA seasons, but also like uh, two all-time level season types of things. And Iverson just doesn't, he doesn't have it on either side there. So like while we talked about all the strengths and whatnot, like the defense, like you said, holds him back a bit. Some of the indicators of of fit maybe on offense hold him back a little bit. And All-NBA peak sounds really fair to me. Well, I will say that he was very highly regarded by voters at the time. Again, I think a lot of that is just raw volume points per game being this thing that was idolized in basketball. I don't know if it happened in the 50s and 60s right out of the gate, but I've written about it in Thinking Basketball, the book, and certainly in the heyday, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. It wasn't until recently that I think a lot of the basketball sphere has just moved off the idea of like raw points per game, regardless of any, regardless of your defense, regardless of your passing, regardless of your decision-making, and regardless certainly of your efficiency, is the be-all, end-all. But I think that was the case. So he finished 28th in all NBA shares, in, in voting share for all NBA team uh, in his career. He's 28th. We have that data going back comprehensively through the mid-80s. And then that gives us the players also receiving votes. We have that back through the mid-80s. And then we know a lot of the all NBA vote tallies back to like the late 60s. So, so 28th there is pretty strong. Dominique Wilkins is 38th. And Dominique Wilkins was a guy who was also beloved at the time. And a lot of people, you know, compare him historically 
to James Worthy, and a lot of people rank him higher than James Worthy. And I mentioned publications have him, have Dominique top 50. The ESPN 76 list from earlier this year has Dominique the highest of any of these. They have him 36th all time. So he's he's got a lot of reverence. He's got all these scoring numbers. But we're right back on the same thing with Dominique. And he's a totally different player than Iverson, which is what I want to talk about. But the question is like, what happens if he's got negative defense? He's got some defensive issues that we can talk about. And then offensively, does he, can he generate high efficiency offense? Can he blend with other players as a finisher? Do you actually want him scoring 30 points per game on this negative efficiency? I think those are the questions for me with trying to sort out where Dominique lands. And I would say just like Iverson, although I think Iverson has a better statistical signal, Wilkins statistical signal, especially in the box score isn't what you'd stack up next to players who are typically like even low level MVP players. I I always like wondering where a player's extreme reverence comes from. And I think about Dominique Wilkins a lot. And I think number one, I referenced this before the dunk contests, like they're pretty incredible. He was fun to watch, especially going head to head with Michael Jordan. But I remember, I think it was a, like a documentary from like 93, 94. It was called Michael Jordan's playground. I don't remember. It was from the early nineties. And in there, Michael Jordan references two players that he he said that had some of the toughest battles. Number one, the two players that he references are Joe Dumars, who he said guarded him the best. And the other player was Dominique Wilkins in terms of like every time I went with him, he was always bringing it. And then there's like it cuts away to, to Wilkins doing the like, you know, pumping the shoulders and bah, reverse dunk and stuff like this. And he has like these smooth finishes and whatnot. So I wonder like how much that has to do with how he's remembered because I feel like Ben on the tape I didn't come away quite as impressed offensively as when I walk away watching Iverson yeah I would agree with that definitely um I I I think having big moments and going head-to-head with guys I think that always helps I think the scoring helps. I think the athleticism. I think the dunks. I mean, it's it's hard to find a Wilkins game where you like don't put the game on and within a quarter or two, he's got some crazy dunk or some crazy putback. Like, I think the first clip I watched of him this week, the third play, he has like a double clutch dunk from the baseline. And that that's where he's such a different player, though, because offensively, he is attacking closeouts. He is coming downhill. If he's open on the perimeter, he's not taking an open three. He's putting it on the deck once or twice, taking off, launching off of both feet and looking to stamp it over somebody and he gets to the line that way or he finishes that way. Similarly, Atlanta could use him as a role man. Even though he's ostensibly playing small forward, he's the three at the time. He's like a six seven, six eight big dude who wants to catch it going downhill put it on the deck, take two steps, and throw it down or get to the line. So he's attacking closeouts. He's a roll man. He's doing this in transition as a finisher. And then he's not much of a passer uh, because I think the biggest reason is less about court vision. I think, one, he doesn't have a great handle. So he doesn't get the ball and have a lot of moves, have a lot of lateral change of direction, have a lot of counters that he can go to a spin, a spin back to the other shoulder. He just, like, catches it and dribbles and goes where he wants to quickly. And he puts it on the deck a couple times and usually makes a decisive move. 
and sometimes to his detriment, Cody, even more decisive, he just catches it and shoots. He passes it to the basket. He is he jumps out, especially watching this this era and then going back into the 80s. He jumps out as a guy who his shot selection just gets crazy. There's no other way to say it. It just gets crazy out there. Like he just catches the ball and shoots it constantly. And you're like, maybe we could have done something else with 16 seconds on the shot clock. Uh, and again, why is he doing that? Because he makes those shots enough that it's not really a problem. He makes those shots enough that when you look at his stats, they didn't know about true shooting percentage back then, but when you look at his field goal percentage at the end of the year, at the end of the day, it would be okay. So no one would go, boy, Dominique, this is a terrible idea. But it gets back to our idea of uh, making those shots. Like if you take those shots, it's really important to make those shots at a higher efficiency. And so you're just bleeding a little value every time you take a shot that's like a B minus shot. It's passable. It's decent. It can help, but what you really want is an A minus shot or an A shot or I mean, shower me down in water, an A plus shot. That's really what you want. <laughs> You're setting the standards really high here, Ben. But yeah, there's like the the two parts of Dominique there. There's uh, there's like self generated offense, Dominique, and then there's like the the secondary action involved with pick and roll, diving to the hoop, getting offensive rebounds, Dominique. And that second Dominique Wilkins is the one where you're like, okay, I can start to see it. He's able to leverage his athleticism and his size a little bit more. He's able to get the springboard to his jump. But when he when it was bogged down with like the self generation, yeah, I feel like he called on like the the pull up mid the pull up jumper like from. I don't know, 16, 15 feet. I don't know if I've ever seen a player, ever seen a player call on the leaning bank shot from whatever mm -hmm. angle he's at. But I think something that also helped that maybe stood out to people and maybe in emboldened him a little bit more is he had such, like, such a high release point on that jumper. Like, sometimes, especially when he would, like, get a step and take a jumper, that release was, like, 11 and a half feet in the air. So he could just get it over anyone. And when it goes in, you're like, oh, my God. This guy, like, you can't defend this guy. This is like a... When you start looking at the numbers in the past, you're like, is that yeah, really what yeah. we want? Yeah, his playoff scoring is always uh, negative efficiency. I mean, we've we've touched on so many of the great offensive players of all time in this series, rattling off numbers about, you know, plus 5, plus 10% efficiency relative to league average or relative to their opponent defense. Wilkins is always like 29 minus 2, 28 minus 2. And as we said, he's not a great passer, so his style of play isn't really like a traditional offensive centerpiece, an offensive engine. Uh, you don't run a ton of stuff through him and get this beautiful, like, well, he can score effectively or he can pass effectively. He's good on the glass. He's active on the glass. Uh, as I said, he plays, you know, you have a little off ball in terms of just how much he's moving and catching and immediately shooting. He's always more of a finisher. It's a totally different type of player. But again, a player who is revered, in his time and still ranked very highly. And I think when you add in the defensive question marks, you get back to this like, well, what does it mean to be a all-star or low-level all-NBA player for like seven years or something like that? What does that mean? Um, I should also mention that Atlanta was a very balanced team. And when Doc Rivers, who kind of probably pretty underrated point guard, when he went out of the lineup, there were some pretty big changes. So in 1986, they played 30 games without Doc Rivers, and Neek and the Hawks had a below-average offensive rating during those 30 games. 
again, you have to ask yourself a question like what would what would we think of Dominique and what would the Hawks look like if they were winning 30 games every year with a subpar offense? And, you know, the stats look much worse for Wilkins as well. In these games without Doc, he was 26 points per 75 minus 3%. He took fewer free throws. Usually when a player goes out and you have to do more, you'll see indicators like free throws go up. But in this case, they go down because of his style of play, because he is a finisher, because he wants to play off the other guy's offense. And instead, Wilkins' turnovers go up. So free throws down, turnovers up. Because asking him, you're just not going to be like, oh, let's play more Dominique ball. That's not what it looked like. He's not that type of player. Now, when they were healthy... When Rivers was in there from 1986 to 1988, you're talking about like a plus five offense. And I think that's something to really consider in terms of Dominique being the leading scorer and a big part of a really good offense, despite not being super efficient. You're going to ask me how I balance those things. And I think I'll get ahead of you because I think the answer is I just don't view him at face value of like, oh, well, he's the leading scorer on a top three offense therefore he has to be an MVP candidate but the the problems or the the trade-offs that we've talked about in his game don't also make him harmful or bad or problematic I still think he's like we talked about Iverson being better I still think he's a he's a pretty darn good offensive player and it's maybe even the the defensive shortcomings that keep him from I don't know getting into like honorable mention territory on our career list or something like that I always think about like the 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 opposing contexts that players grow up in and like how they learn to play. And I, I wish instead of like being at the same time as Michael Jordan and like leaning into like the mid range stuff and trying to have some of the self generated stuff. But when we talk about defensively, I think what's interesting, what stood out to me is he, because of his athleticism, he was able to make plays once in a while, like tipping passes, you know, he could leap up there and like block someone's vision, get a deflection, jump a passing lane, get out, throw it on a highlight dunk. And that stands out to you. But for his size, like, I, I don't necessarily know how good of a rim protector he was. I know you and I texting the other night were just swapping plays where he wasn't able, able to keep up with Bird, like running around picks. Then again, that's against Larry Bird, but uh, the the pick dodging was not very good. So yeah, overall, what do you think of his defense? Uh, I, he's he's a very stiff. He's a very kind of explosive north south kind of athlete. So you don't have a lot of agile left to right things and he's a big body and yeah he is very weak comparatively to other players when it comes to chasing wings around screens the other thing about his defense is with his size and athleticism I kind of always feel like the idea of him is better than what you actually end up seeing when it comes to like paint protection when it comes to shot blocking when it comes to making these big plays with that big athletic body you see them occasionally And then you realize like you're watching for a while and you haven't clipped one in a couple games. And then you go look at the numbers and you're like, what? He has a 1% block or 2% block rate. This is like half of Dwayne Wade. You're like, like, wait a second, this this doesn't add up. So I do have a lot of question marks about his defense. And I think that for me is something that keeps him from having like a strong all NBA peak or something like that. One more um, with or without you number that I forgot to mention earlier because I do think it's fascinating to look at these guys and contextualize the team quality they played on and the fact that they don't have the greatest indicators ever, but they constantly have positive indicators. At least the two guys were talked about in depth so far because I think these guys are really good 
uh, overall compared to most players in NBA history. 1992, near the end of Wilkins' prime, he has a, a Achilles injury, and then he comes back and has big numbers, but I don't, I don't think he's as good after the Achilles injury despite that. 1992, he plays 26 games when the Hawks are healthy. They play at a 43-win pace. And he plays, uh, he misses 39 games and they play at a 33 win pace. So again, we see like a 10 game change and that's all offense. So without him, they have a minus three offense and with him, they have a plus four offense. So I do think the style of offense that he played, you could be, you could be better by just being a little bit more selective or being more accurate as a shooter. But all the things we've talked about, I think, do provide value, especially on a team that didn't have another guy that was going to go for like 25 or 30 a night. It just had a bunch of balanced athletic pieces. I've mentioned Doc Rivers at point guard. Kevin Willis was a big center. But then you even had guys like Antoine Carr who were like, you know, he's like a good isolation scoring center and he can hit a jumper, but you don't want him to score 20. He just doesn't have the capacity to carry a 20 or 25 point per game load. Uh, they had Randy Whitman, who was also not a huge high volume scorer, but he's a spacer and a shooter and movement shooters look like they help offense so much. So it was a nice little balanced athletic team. And I think Wilkins skill set that we've described helped it quite a bit and made them competitive. But again, the, the shortcoming for me is like, am I thinking about this guy as a slam dunk, build a championship offense, put him in the MVP race? Not quite. And he certainly had that stature in the mid 80s, 1986. He gets all this MVP shine. And then year after year, the voters back off a little bit, except I think he has one like bounce back here. And they're like, wait, Wilk- Wilkins is Wilkins is back. Let's put him in the MVP. We can add Kevin Willis to the list of players that, like, we can definitely talk about some other time when we're done with the series, because I loved watching him. Just a just a smooth, smooth operator, I thought. But in the spirit of this entire top 40 exercise, uh, where ultimately do you place his peak? And as always, like, how many of, like, all-star, all-NBA type seasons do you see from him? I like Iverson's peak a little bit better. Uh, I mean, the ranges that we're talking about are interesting because of Wilkins is so much bigger as a body and so athletic. Uh, but I, I like, I really prefer James Worthy's peak and those guys are compared a lot. And I think just looking at Worthy's game, I think he's a better passer, better ball handler. You can go to him in the post or mid post face up game and you can generate those super high efficiency shots, right? Like James Worthy is phenomenal as a post player and then great as a finisher on the wing in transition. Wilkins had that as well, but then you add that worthy, I think is like a sneaky good defender and his, he could switch and his length would give people problems. So to me, it's, it's like if I were to make a peaks list and stack up worthy and Wilkins, the difference in their value or the difference in how much they helped a team per game wouldn't be astronomical and yet also in my head, it's like a very clear divide. I'm like, I would definitely much rather have James Worthy. With that said, what's what's a range for Wilkins? I can see him as an all-NBA player. You know, can I get him to a really strong all-NBA player comfortably? Probably not. I think I prefer Iverson for what we've talked about in this episode. But Wilkins, he also had a number. I mean, he's like an all-star to me in like 1985. You know, a lot of the style we're talking about is like, 1985, 1986, through the early 90s. So if you've got 1985 as an all-star and you run that to 1991, that's seven all-star years. 
And then, as I mentioned, he's got some post-Achilles years. Maybe 1993 is an all-star quality year. So that's an eighth year. So I think he's probably got, you know, eight all-star seasons or so in my book. And that would probably get you around to where Iverson was talking about career value. You know, he's not too far off from the honorable mentions that we started the list with. So we've talked about a couple of different, like, archetypes of player, right? So we have, like, Allen Iverson, just this little jitterbug kind of, like, all over the court, breaking people down off the dribble, things like that. Uh, Mentioned offhand James Worthy here, just this guy that can fit next to other high-end talent. Um, Anytime we could talk about James Worthy is just a great time. But then Dominique Wilkins is kind of, I think he kind of has a similar, not completely, but similar sort of statistical idea as another guy that's more modern. And that's the like this this high volume score can be efficient especially in the regular season, maybe a little bit more efficient, has some indicators in the playoffs that can maybe be a higher level offensive player, not a great passer necessarily, has some defensive shortcomings, uh plays the forward-ish position, and that's Carmelo Anthony. I see them as kind of being sort of like 80s and and 2000s early 2010s reflections of each other. So what what do you think about that? Interesting. I think of Carmelo and Adrian Dantley Mm. as going together from the 80s. So Carmelo doesn't quite have the love. You know, we spent most of this episode as we wanted to talking about Iverson and Wilkins because they're so high on so many lists. Now we get into this range of like, sometimes you'll see Carmelo in the top 70. Sometimes you'll see Adrian Dantley in the top 70. And they but like Dantley had these great scoring stats that were good really good volume like 26 28 points a game and then crazy efficiency so using the numbers that we've talked about in this series he has a number of regular seasons that are like 28 plus 10 29 plus 9 you know um 30 plus 9 he gets 29.6 points per 75 in 1986 Now, with Dantley, one thing I'll mention is that the playoff numbers never hit that level. But for him, he did it by catching the ball around the elbow, catching the ball on the wing, clearing out, getting that illegal defense, picturesque, you know, Cody, your favorite, clear out the entire side of the court, artificially space the floor for an ISO score, and then Dantley would wait and he would hold it. And I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book, so I don't want to get too much into it. But dribble, 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 dribble. Oh, if I have a nice shot, I'll take it. And by the way, that dude had some serious post moves. If you wanted to play a one-on-one game with unlimited dribbles, Adrian Dantley's got to be way up on your list, despite being like 6'4 Pat, a, a defender comes, I'm going to kick it out. Not a great passer out of those spots. So he could create some offense, but it's not this like beautiful game offense that you're going to get from throwing it into Magic Johnson in the post. And then the third option with Dantley, which is definitely my favorite, is because it's not captured by stats. The third option is dribble, dribble, dribble. I haven't quite found a shot I liked. There's six seconds on the shot clock. Someone take this hand grenade. I'm going to pass it back out to my teammate and you can do something terrible with it, like turn it over or take a 21 foot contested jumper as the shot clock winds down. So he's another one of these guys that very, very specific style, defensive shortcomings. And I feel like Carmelo is the modern version of this where it's not as extreme. There's no more illegal defense. 
Anthony's a little quicker with his actions. His actual game and like his bag, if you will, is a little different. But it's the same reminder for me because it's like ball stopper, ISO scorer, have to go to my spot, have to go to my spot and turn and face up. And how does this play with other offenses, especially when you're a forward who, as you said, doesn't have, you know, great defensive indicators. Let's put it that way. First of all, adding a little bit more to Adrian Dantley here, not just the dribble, dribble, Ben, my literal favorite, literal favorite play in NBA history, the playing the Celtics. And I think Kevin McHale is on Adrian Dantley. Dantley catches it, catches it at the top of the key. McHale's giving him a little space. One pump fake, two pump fake, three pump fake. Is it over? No, Ben. Four pump fake. Ends up shooting the little set shot, buries it. It's just incredible. It's like eight seconds of him just like slowly pump faking, Mikhail being like, do I take a nap now? Like, what's going on here? Uh, but I think what's what's really fascinating about Carmelo here is that it, he seems like a guy that had two very clear... He seems like he has a couple phases of his career. Like, there, there's Denver, Carmelo Anthony. There's New York, Knicks, Carmelo Anthony. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to talk about, like, coming off the bench, trailblazers and whatever else, Carmelo Anthony. But in... In Denver, it felt like he, you know, he was a little bit slimmer, played the three a little bit more naturally. Um, I think he was more aggressive ta- attacking the basketball. Like you said, a lot more decisive with actions. Like what maybe would move off, catch, and boom, he's making the attack. But then you have like the famous, what, Carmelo dropped 50 points without like a free throw or without a three. Like all of them are just like in the New York Knicks. He's spotting up at the, at the elbow and just kind of turns and fakes and hit that hits that mid-range. He's a little bit bulked up, can go up and play the four. So I think that's the thing I think of with Carmelo. I think like New York Knicks Carmelo feels more like Adrian Dantley than, than let's say 2009 Denver Nuggets Carmelo Anthony. It's interesting. I don't know if I see the separation between Carmelo at really any point in his career and the style of play maybe playing the four more because the game starts to space out because he gets a little bit bigger and slower and older. And that's a natural thing when you're like a six, eight small forward, maybe something like that. He can obviously play the four. You would maybe want him playing the four if he were better defensively. Right. So maybe there's something there in terms of that sort of change or evolution, but statistically, you know, he also looks like a good player, looks like a very good player. If you look at when he goes in and out of the lineup, um, sometimes things get better. Like in Denver, he is missing time and they look a little bit better. Six, seven wins better consistently with him than without him. Uh, You see something similar in New York in 2012, the, the year of Lynn Sanity. You also see stuff like, he leaves Denver and the Nuggets get way better, right? That is, that is a really kind of weird data point to trade a bunch of guys like the Danilo Gallinari's of the world and have a kind of team without a superstar suddenly look much better than, than when Anthony was there. And similarly, when you look at his plus minus numbers that we have for his entire career, similar to what we saw with someone like Iverson, if you look at five-year heart of his career in the regular season. He's in the 87th percentile. His teams are about eight points worse when he goes to the bench. By the way, his teams were worse when he was on the bench than Iverson's. I said Iverson's were like minus three per 48 minutes when he was on the on the bench. Anthony's are like minus five in New York from 2011 to 2015. And then in the playoffs, a very similar thing. In the playoffs, his teams are about seven points worse 
when he goes to the bench, and that's like, you know, 77th to 85th percentile kind of numbers. So consistent with the players we've talked about, these are all good or really good players, even historically when we stack them up against the best players ever. But there is a level missing on offense compared to some of the best offensive players that we spent the last seven, eight, nine episodes gushing about. And then with all these guys, there's question marks on defense. And the, the little a half a point or a point on the difference between being a, a fringe all defensive candidate and like a problem on defense, this makes a huge, huge change in how valuable, valuable you are in a single year. It's the difference between being the eighth best player, the sixth best player in the NBA and the 19th best player in the NBA. And then when you take that and compound it over six or eight or 10 years, that's where you get the difference between this guy's got the 37th most valuable career in my assessment and the 77th most valuable career in my assessment. And with Carmelo too, you know, we've talked about even like, uh, you know, players defensive and offensive peaks, not quite aligning with Carmelo. It's almost like it felt like some of his offensive skills never quite aligned. Like in in Denver, he didn't quite have the shooting touch he had in New York. So he could have spaced next to, to the Nuggets players a little bit better if he was able to shoot the three. Like he did in, like, say, 2014, 2013 with the Knicks. But then when he has that jump shot with the Knicks, he doesn't quite have the same burst and the same explosiveness off the dribble. So there's kind of like that that disconnect there. And then I think something that actually helps Mello a little bit is I liked the team builds next to him. Like, it always actually felt like the contexts were good for, like, emphasizing the mellowness of the teams. Like, you know, I talked about um, the Patreon the Patreon podcast, a uh, little theory about Dirk Nowitzki and Carmelo Anthony. Well, guess what? After 2011, who ends up on the Knicks with Carmelo Anthony? We have Tyson Chandler and Jason Kidd, right? We got to get some defensive guys next to him. We got to get a big center next to him. And then even in in Denver, you know, Marcus Camby, Kenyon Martin, Chauncey Billups, J.R. Smith, guys that can play off ball a little bit more and emphasize what he's able to do a little bit more um, on ball. And then even with all of that, we're not seeing these huge indicators of like an enormous offensive impact. So um, I, I just think that disconnect of the the offensive skills is also interesting there. I want to talk about the shooting. I'm glad you hit on it. But 2013, you bring in Tyson Chandler, defensive player of the year, caliber big man in the middle. Jason Kidd, we've talked about him in the Dirk episode with his just IQ out there on the floor, being historically such a great guard defender. Now, all of a sudden, you get a Knicks team that when they were healthy, 42 games, all of them played together along with Raymond Felton, 52 win pace, plus six offense. Now, Mello misses seven games. It's a small sample, but they play at a 58-win pace because now all of a sudden they're just all defense. They're passable on offense, and they're like, they play like the top one, top two defense in the league. So I think we, this is the same thing that we talked about a little bit with Iverson. Sometimes if you create this structure where you have really strong defenders and then a big scorer, the scorer gets an incredible amount of credit. And it's not that they aren't really good. It's just that if you were to actually try to make a better team and add other players, like similarly, um, you know, in Denver, Anthony played with Iverson. Things weren't bad, but they also weren't great. And when Iverson left and a different type of player like Chauncey Billups came in, when you bring in balanced defenders and you have Kenyon Martin and Nene, and th- then you got a conference finalist. Then you got a solid team. So I'm glad you mentioned that. The shooting. We talked about this. It's maybe a nice full circle. We can put a bow on this entire conversation. 
Carmelo shoots pretty well. He shoots 44% between 10 and 15 feet from 2013 to 2015. But the thing is, 70% of Carmelo's shots are not at the basket. So he's taking a huge diet of like short mid-range, long mid-range jumpers. And you mentioned it. He's only a 34% three-point shooter in the playoffs in the heart of his prime. And so something has to give. They like If you look at some of his profile, you're like, man, maybe he could really be efficient because he's pretty good in the mid-range. He's pretty good in long twos. He can get to the line. He's a good free throw shooter. What, what am I missing? And it's like, you take a lot of long two-point shots. You don't shoot very well from three. That'll do it, right? That will suppress your efficiency. And if you could shoot 40% from three instead of 34%, if you could get you know, 10% more of your offense at the basket instead of settling for a long two, that's the difference between shifting your efficiency up by five or six true shooting percentage points. And that's the difference between adding that point, point and a half, two points per game that takes you from, I'm an all-star level player to on offense to I'm an MVP level player on offense. And that's what I was saying even way earlier, tying the bow even tighter, maybe even adding a second bow Ben to this conversation where like it's hard to imagine like somebody adjusting their play style because you say this it's like Carmelo would be so much better if you were to add a little bit more but again in those New York Knicks days I'm not sure if he's getting to the basket more I'm just not sure if that's the kind of offense he's able to to generate anymore so with some of these guys that we've been talking about like you said this shot selection idea it's something that you're like well what if we just do this and it's like then it's fundamentally not that player and we're talking about somebody else at that point. That's probably a good place to wrap. I do have a nice rant about Earl Monroe and Pete Maravich. We'll save it for the Patreon post show, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That is also the best way to directly support everything we do. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Sign up there. We have additional content. We have a ton of these post shows, extra podcasts. Uh, We have a monthly Q&A in our Discord community. If you really want to nerd out and pick my brain about anything patreon.com slash thinking basketball when we come back for the finale of this series episode 11 it will be the mount rushmores the goat candidates the very very best careers in nba history we will see who i have at number one after five years of things happening otherwise thanks as always for listening to this one and wherever you are i hope you're having a great day